0: What does merger market data reveal about how the first half of the year has shaped up for private equity exits? How can GPs get their much needed realizations over the line in the current market and what routes are available to them? And how does this fit into the wider picture around the rising cost of capital? We'll be discussing all this and more with a guest interview with Steve O'Hare, senior partner at Equistone, in today's episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome to the Unquote Private Equity podcast. My name's Harriet Matthews, I'm Funds Editor at Unquote and Merger Market, and I'll be your host for today. Today, we're going to be talking all about private equity exits, and we'll be hearing some insights from Equistone's Steve O'Hare later on the topic. Exits matter, of course, because they're a key part of the private equity lifecycle. They allow a manager to prove their strategy, to build up their track record, and provide their LPs with liquidity. Now to discuss all of this with me from our editorial team, um, ahead of hearing from Steve from Equistone, I'm pleased to welcome my colleague Rachel Lewis. Rachel, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Harris, great to be back.
0: Yep, great to great to have you on board again. Now, we're obviously at the time of year when we're starting to get a kind of clearer picture of how the first half of 2023 has played out um, in terms of deal count, deal volume um, and on the exit side. What we've seen, and I'll just give a very quick uh, run through of of this before I kind of get your take on it, Rachel. Um, What we've seen is a sort of plateauing of exits. Um, This is a combination of trade sales and secondary buyouts. Um, 76 apiece um, is the current count between Q1 and Q2 this year. Um, and when we sort of add those out, we've got obviously 152 in total, 111 of those trade sales, 41 are secondary buyouts. Um, and I think it's 19 secondary buyouts in Q1, 22 in Q2. So what that gives us is an idea that clearly there's more activity on the trade sales side. Secondary buyouts are, are tricky. And just putting that data into context, this is now the lowest level of exits that we've seen um, in the European market since the first half of 2020, and we all know what was happening then in the UK. It was, it was hands-faced space, it was lockdowns, it was a real kind of pause, particularly in, in Q2, as people worked out kind of what to do. So that's the backdrop to our discussion today. Um, and Rachel, first of all, um, you've obviously been looking at those numbers as well. Um, did that surprise you thinking about what your, you know, your reporting is looking like day-to-day situations you're covering?
1: Yeah, not really, to be honest. I mean, I I look at my own internal pipeline and I'm sure many of our readers will be doing the same and it is quite stacked at the top with assets that haven't sold yet. I think we did anticipate that trade would be playing a little bit more in this current environment. Um, You know, we're seeing more protracted processes, which gives them more time to to act on the buy side a lot of them are quite cash rich and kind of executing their own deployment plans and just are being i still wouldn't describe them as nimble compared to private equity but have more of an opportunity to to come in do the due diligence properly sit down and think you know whether they want to buy this asset when before private equity would have just snapped it up almost instantaneously so
0: of course, and um, we're all aware you mentioned more protracted kind of MA processes, but there are more protracted fundraising processes as well, which I guess takes time and resources away um, and kind of just mental. Space and capacity from the the GPS who are looking at those processes. Yeah, I think
1: one thing on the the data which does surprise me is it's the lowest level since 2020. I actually thought it would be um way before that because if you look at kind of the flip side of the coin, which is deployment, we did some work that in Q1 it was kind of like the lowest since 2009. So going even further back. So to be honest, you know. It's it's well down, but I thought it it might be a little bit lower than than even going back that further historically.
0: Interesting. I mean, um, everyone will be relieved to to hear as well. I'm probably not surprised that um, deployment has picked up slightly since that particularly low point in uh, in Q1. Um, and of course, we'll be kind of reporting on all of this, analyzing it in in the weeks to come. Um, now, just, just thinking about kind of the obstacles at hand at the moment, um, I'm sure our listeners will be aware of a lot of them. But um, Rachel, can you give a bit of a kind of rundown, again, thinking about what you're reporting on right now, what's sort of stopping things come to mar- coming to market or stopping deals actually getting over the line?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's no secret there's been a big gap in kind of um, vendor buyer price expectations for a little while, which people are still settling in to this new kind of environment. One of the large cap healthcare deals recently, which a lot of people had been expecting to kind of trigger, kind of unlock the market a little bit, was uh, Vet Partners, the UK Veterinary Group, which is owned by BC Partners. Um, and round one bids basically came in well below well very short of the vendor's price expectations according to our merger market reporting we don't quite know where the bids fell um and kind of they weren't from our reporting enough for for the vendor bc partners to walk away from the process but i think definitely there's a lot more um a lot more emphasis being being put on on where the pricing does land and we're seeing a lot of processes trip up there obviously behind that there's you know, loads of sub factors as well. So people getting really, um, angsty over EBITDA adjustments. There was a a radiology process in Germany last year, Radex, which is owned by Gilda Healthcare Partners, um, that fell over on, or, or went quiet on, um, some quite aggressive adjustments to the EBITDA. And then obviously underpinning all of this is just the debt availability as well. And I think we'll talk a little bit later about how some companies are kind of working around that, but we're seeing fewer and fewer companies go into a, an M&A process now or vendors go into an M&A process without having some kind of Creative debt solution in in place, which which means that the the buyer can kind of take that on
0: definitely, I know um sort of near the, the start of this year, we spoke about how the kind of face of the pe auction was changing, and I guess this is a kind of another step in in how people are approaching the market differently.
1: Oh yeah, if there's you know a year ago I was speaking to people, you know how are private equity going to navigate? what's to come and virtually everyone said well private equity has always been creative it will continue to be creative and i think that is really what we've seen over the past six months
0: for sure so we we've set the scene with some merger market data um set the the context a bit with sort of what we're seeing we'll now listen to our interview with steve o'hare from equistone and we'll be back with you after that to discuss our key takeaways Hello, Steve. Welcome to the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Good to have you here today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem at all. Now, we're going to be talking all things exits today and specifically talking about, um, you know, Equistone's record on exits in, I guess, the last year and a half or so, um, sort of the, the outlook generally. I think I'm right in saying you've made around eight exits over the past roughly year and a half, um, five of which were in the UK. Please do correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. So I think a few names will probably stand out to our listeners um, in that group of companies that you've exited over the last uh, year and a half or so. One that certainly stands out to me is Acuity Knowledge Partners, which is a financial services research and analytics provider that Equistone sold to Pamira earlier this year. The reason that actually stands out to me is because um, when we were looking at our Q1 data on private equity buyouts in Europe, that's actually one of the biggest deals that kind of got over the line in that quarter um, amidst a kind of general global uh, drop in M&A and of course in in private equity activity in Europe. So taking all of that into account, I wanted to ask you, Steve, what the kind of key considerations have been for you and for Equistone when you've been bringing your most recent exits to market? What kind of gave you conviction that they would be successful? Because getting a deal over the line in the current environment is certainly not a given.
2: Yeah, I mean, it- today's market is similar to ones we've experienced in the past when there's a tightening of debt markets or credit availability or cost of capital um which means you know preparation is key so it was one of the first things I learned in in my career uh was to make sure that the you know the challenge that you place on a business throughout the ownership is intensified pre-exit to make sure that advisor roster is is full that you're looking at the business critically from the outside in what are the potential deal breakers where are the issues where are the value drivers so that you can preempt what conversations are going to be had by bidders Um, but fundamentally attractive businesses will always um, create demand and appetite it's making sure that you've thought through in advance where the challenges might be to make that process run not just well for, for us as sellers but also for the purchaser as well make their job easier for them
0: I see. So almost, you know, having that that due diligence on on yourself, effectively as as a vendor.
2: Yes. So there was there was months worth of prep done in advance, ensuring that the, you know, the, the data cube, the analysis, the market mapping that we were going to use, whether we sold the business or not, still to develop, uh, was was robust and and worthy for a, a vendor to look at. Uh, inevitably, a vendor will do their own due diligence, but the more thorough and robust you do yourself, um, you can make their job easier. And in today's market, where credit markets have tightened, uh, we already had in place uh, an extended uh, facility, which was portable. And by portable, it means it can go through to the other side of a transaction. Um, it, it had the longevity through a deal and a change of ownership, which ultimately was the foundation upon which the, the transaction could make sense.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. So the kind of debt story is as is important in the, the current context.
2: I think in today's markets, it, it, it's fundamental. Uh, there, there have been periods in the not too recent past where you know, credit availability was almost a given. Um, and, and I think it, it really needs to be at the forefront of your mind setting out in a process. And again, catering for the, the risks, the issues and the appetites of a lender, because without that, you know, the capital structure won't work, the transaction won't work, and or you face a, a protracted process or one that might not deliver the optimum pricing outcome.
0: Absolutely, which isn't something anyone wants to be spending time on in in this market, I guess. indeed. and you you mentioned kind of having a full um, roster of advisors being important in terms of that prep work. but I wondered what um kind of what are you looking for essentially when you're mandating advisors in this environment? Has it changed at all versus how you might have approached it a year ago um, a couple of years ago?
2: Uh, not not particularly for us. Uh, I think the characteristics always hold true. somebody that understands the sector. Uh, somebody that will find the right buyers with the right characteristics and that not just their the size of their wallet it's how are they going to be a custodian of the business what's their what's their plans if it is a secondary buyout as acuity was with with what's their relationship and style with management going to be like Uh, particularly when they'd had a first taste with us that had been very successful Uh, and an advisor that's willing to roll the sleeves up and and really get stuck in i think the days of you know, just sticking your emblem onto an IM, pushing it out to hundreds of buyers and expecting one to stick uh, will come again, but they're not around at the moment.
0: Yeah. And um it is the kind of, again, going back to the debt component, how how important is what advisors can offer in, in that area?
2: Yes. I mean, it, it, it as I said before, it, it's fundamental to a transaction and um the, the specialist debt advisors, both from a corporate finance and a legal point of view, are, are fundamental to transaction these days. It, it really is a a niche specialism rather than just part of the overall MA umbrella. Uh, and they bring, you know, in the same way that you, you're looking for a, a partner on the equity side, you are looking for a partner on the debt side that understands the industry fundamentals and, and that understand where there might be, you know, ups and downs, um, rainy days as well as sunny days, such that they have a, a grasp of, of what that means rather than panicking at the first sign of uh, any distress.
0: And now, obviously, um, Equistone's in a fairly kind of strong position, given the number of exits you've made over the last year and a half or so. But you must have a kind of uh, a game plan for if, you know, it gets tougher for you to make the next kind of round of exits that you might need to make looking at the next year or so. Um, what options are kind of available or might, might you or, or similar sort of GPs potentially consider?
2: Yeah, I mean, we 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 aren't altering our approach too much. I mean, fundamentally, if we do the right job day-to-day, creating value with the management teams and the portfolio of companies, they will be attractive assets to, to somebody. Um, our strategic goal is always to build better businesses, not just bigger ones. And by that, you know, creating an, a market share dynamic that makes us attractive to a trade party. And ultimately, if you're attractive to a trade party then private equity will likely want to invest in you too. So you're giving yourself optionality. Uh, We we tend not to focus too much on the public markets because they can open and close uh, quite quickly, whereas the amount of dry capital that I'm, I'm sure you and your listeners will be aware of that's been raised over the last 18, 36 months means that there will be a continuity of demand for quality assets from other private equity firms. But we also want to build businesses that are attracted to strategic targets too.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, I suppose aside from that, there are options available like, um, you know, potentially moving assets to continuation funds. There's also the option to kind of reinvest potentially to get, you know, either to get a deal over the line or because you believe in the kind of continuing value creation story. And I guess the theme we often see around both of those is around kind of the potential for more more buy and build, just more, you know, it makes sense to hold an asset for longer or be involved with an asset for longer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And two of the more recent um, exits, Acuity, that we talked about, we, we reinvested alongside Pemira uh, and ITG, uh, another business that was sold to Bridgepoint. We've reinvested alongside them as well.
0: And um, just thinking about the kind of overall picture um, around the cost of capital and returns. I wanted to ask you, Steve, sort of how much you actually expect the returns you're going to be potentially making in future to be impacted by uh, the fact that you know it's simply more expensive for businesses to pay back the the debt that that they've kind of taken on as as part of a buyout. What else are you potentially looking at doing to to bolster returns?
2: Yeah, I mean, part of the answer to that question depends upon how aggressive. Um, an institution has been in using debt in its capital structure in the past. So, if you know, if 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 it was in the five, six, seven times EBITDA was consistently being used at, you know, euro or plus forty bibs, uh, sorry, four hundred bips, then it's likely that your returns are going to come under some stress, um, or at least additional pressure compared to where they were, given the the tighter debt market, both in terms of multiple that you can get and cost of capital. At Equistone, we were typically fairly modest users of leverage you know the average in the portfolio is is under four times levered um so there's you know the relativity of the increasing cost is is more modest at that level um so we believe the the more fundamental driver to returns will be actually company performance rather than use of leverage and then you're back to the normal day job which is how do you grow up.
0: Okay, and I guess um, you know there's there's buy buy and build, uh, which I've mentioned already, presumably being a fairly strong factor in in that.
2: I think that's common across the mid market, but particularly at Equistone. I think of the last 100 deals we've done, we've done over 300 bolt-ons. Um, so, we, you know, it's it's almost a, a very familiar practice for us and Machine to to grow our businesses either as domestic champions or particularly uh, expand internationally under under our ownership.
0: And I suppose the, the argument for being able to secure financing in a kind of tough debt market for those types of deals is often um, that essentially the business um, and its market in which it operates should be fairly familiar to to you, um, you know, as as the kind of the GP, the sponsor owner, you know, it's a safer bet than a kind of fresh buyout. Is is that fair to say?
2: I, th- I think that's one characteristic for sure. I mean, we, we've operated in the same six sectors for approaching 20 years so we've got good deep knowledge uh, in each of those territories um, and sub subsectors. we have deep relationships with our debt partners as well uh, some of whom also have core sector specialisms so that creates a, uh, a synergy of, of knowledge really as to what we find attractive where we see the risk where we see the value drivers and therefore how we can put a capital structure together that Gives the vendors what they want, um, without us feeling we put too much stress on the balance sheet.
0: Okay, and um, asking you to do maybe a little bit of kind of crystal ball gazing now. I guess what would you say? Kind of at the moment, the single biggest sort of obstacle or hesitancy is when you're considering bringing an asset to market. Uh, and when is where the crystal ball comes in? When might you expect that to kind of ease off a little?
2: Yeah, I mean, money never sleeps, but it can certainly have a nap. Um, and, and I think the last six and nine months have seen a slowdown in deal activity. Um, but we, we, again, we've seen that before. Straight after the global financial crisis, there was there was a slowdown in deal activity. But that almost creates pent up demand, almost like a dam. Um, so there's there's good businesses that whether they're um, worried having a slight downturn in trading or seeing inflation issues or or maybe can't get the price expectations they want because with increased cost of capital at some stage that that mathematically leads to to reduced prices. Uh, I, I do think that in the second half of this year or Q4 and into 2024 because the economy hasn't been as as poorly as people thought it might have been 12 months ago, there will be a natural buildup of of companies that come to market, particularly private ones. Um, you've also seen reduced deal flow of private equity houses selling. i pleased to say we're a positive exception to that rule. But the natural sort of hold periods of private equity funds can't be too elastic and stretch on for an additional two, three, four, five years. So again, I, I do see the deal market coming back.
0: Yeah. And um, I suppose a lot of our listeners will be hoping also the fundraising market, hopefully if, um, you know, GPs can make the distributions they need to make to their LPs to allow them to, you know, get liquidity for their next kind of round of allocations.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a that's an important dynamic in the industry that will have tightened over the last nine or 12 months.
0: And yeah, I suppose a lot of the prep work is happening right now on on many of those deals. If they're sort of going to come to market, there'll be a bit of an uptick towards the end of this year, um, start of next, given everything you were saying at the start of our conversation around people or, you know, around you yourself at, at Equistone, sort of starting preparations pretty early on, um, laying the ground for, for those exits.
2: Yeah. And the, and, and the friends that I've got that work at the investment banks or corporate finance houses say exactly that, that they're, you know, the the... 2022 was a year of two halves. Uh, a brilliant first half of the year, record deal numbers, you know, record fee income, and then it went very quiet. Uh, and it's still reasonably quiet, but their activity levels of new wins, pipeline prospects, pitches, you know, people who are doing prep work is is back busy again. So, my my sort of hope slash confidence for the next nine or twelve months is actually based upon the activity that we're seeing with our corporate finance peers.
0: Great. And um, good to be, you know, hopefully ending on on a positive note. So thank you very much, Steve, for taking the time to speak to me. It's been great to have you on the podcast.
2: My pleasure. Nice to speak to you too.
0: Thank you again to Steve for taking the time to speak to me. Now, sort of thinking about what was said there in that interview, Rachel, maybe you can kind of kick things off. What stood out to you in particular?
1: Yeah, I mentioned it before, but uh, the debt, the debt is so important in this environment and how you can head into processes um, with, with a debt package or debt that is portable. It's Portability of debt is something that's been talked about for a little while, but I think over the past six months, we've seen it more kind of geared towards semi-exits that bring fresh capital into the company but don't trigger a change of ownership. Thus, the debt is portable. So I think we've seen this with um, minority stakes. So a couple of the big minority stake deals that we've seen um, in the past year half. So Silver Lake bought a minority stake in Team System from Hellman and Friedman. Um, and then we also saw Partners Group by a min- We also saw partners group by a minority stake in Sterling Pharma, which is a UK-based pharma services asset from GHO. So minority stakes are one. GP leads are another because obviously they don't don't trigger a change in ownership. So Triton just raised a huge 1.63 billion for a multi-asset continuation fund, uh, which I think will hold around four assets from its fourth fund. I will say that we haven't quite seen the amount of GP-led secondaries trickle into the market as much as we expected to, which is interesting in itself. But to go back to the, the portability of debt issue, um, what we have seen over the past few months, because like you said at the beginning, sponsors do need to make full exits and start returning that capital to their LPs. We're actually seeing um, quite interesting companies refinance prior to a sale process with kind of a clause in that refinancing which helps which basically has a portability clause so a big one we've been following recently is um, partners group which is is on the verge of, of running a process for civica and that has been um, securing a 1 billion pounds um, plus private debt package in the run-up to that auction in a in auction, in auction, a bid to minimize the execution risk. So I think, and you know, this is happening with a few other processes as well, and it is something I expect to continue as interest rates remain quite sticky.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I know our, our colleagues at DebtWire are tracking those processes, and there's quite a bit more convergence in terms of kind of the, the equity side of things and the debt side of things, as you say, the kind of... Um, you know, uh, execution risk being minimized. And I think that kind of points to the role of advisors as well. Um, Steve touched on the role of um, kind of specialized debt advisors and and kind of what they need to do. He spoke as well a bit about just generally what what they're looking for in advisors, which I think goes back to what we um, discussed sort of at the start of this year around auction processes changing. It's really about them being able to find the right buyers, um, not just the person with the biggest ticket, but the right character in terms of the kind of business continuity and perhaps how they'll work with the managers as well. And obviously, that's important if they're reinvesting for minority state, which again is something that can kind of get deals over the line, I guess.
1: Yeah, I guess so. And, you know, the the debt advisors is increasingly important. We're seeing lenders being brought into the process much earlier on as well and kind of having a bit more sway over where the auction goes. We are seeing a lot more modest leverage being applied um, to sales. So I think there was a quote which is uh, five times is the new six times. So that is interesting. And yeah, a lot of the funds I speak to are kind of applying that leverage a lot more modesty, which then goes back to our previous, con- um, previous podcast, which means that there now has to be a lot more kind of emphasis on value creation um which then you know means that they have to also have a clear view when they buy the asset over what they're actually buying and and where that valuation can can where that value creation can fall into
0: yeah definitely because um there's some interesting um points um that steve made as well i think around um due diligence right
1: yeah due diligence um is becoming increasingly important i think it has always been important, but but like you said, you know, I think from a lot of the the advisors that I speak to, it's about getting those numbers right. It's about properly looking at the company. Um, even going down to actually just like visualizing the data in a good way. Um and you know, really getting a sense of what this business is, where it's going, what its risks are. And yeah, a lot of the commercial due diligence guys I speak to are very busy at the moment as they kind of ramp up, ramp up hopefully for for what might be a a busy next few months to come. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, You know, talking to to people at the start of, or kind of mid, mid first half of this year, lots of people had a lot of hope about revival in, in the second half of this year, um, people are now ta- starting to talk about kind of pent-up demand in the second half, but also in 2024, which I guess, yeah, as you say, is, is keeping those, um, those advisors busy. And I, the hope is that some of these obstacles um, will sort of recede a bit, um, whether it's you know, around the, the valuation uh, gaps that, that you mentioned, Rachel, um, or whether it's around kind of getting used to the financing situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, my like, like you said, people are gonna have to start exiting soon because we've also got this fundraising holdup, and they need to, they need to kind of return some money to their LPs. So there has to be a trigger event, and I think that's why we're coming to seeing these creative ways of, of enabling exits and and de risking the process. I think the large cap side will still suffer a little bit. Um, I. I am personally quite bearish on H2 from my conversations. I think we'll see sustained deal flow in the smaller mid-cap space because they are a little bit easier to get done. Um, but we'll just have to, I think, wait for IPO and debt markets to kind of properly open again before we start seeing adequate exits on the large-cap side.
0: Yep. And I I asked you to make predictions when we spoke about the super return (laughs) key takeaways. um, I won't, I won't do that again. Um, But just briefly returning to what you said around um, GP leads. um, Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think people are, you know, GPs themselves are very excited about this um, as a potential exit route. Um, the, The question that keeps coming up again and again, when I speak to people about this is just that, You know, is there going to be enough capital there to actually take advantage of the deal flow that people are expecting to come? from continuation funds. Um, some people are making the argument that if there are commingled strategies um, by some of the big secondaries players that do both LP stakes and GP leads from the same funds, they will have taken advantage of the kind of unprecedented LP stakes deal flow at the start of um, in the kind of first half of this year. So, they'll be needing to rebalance a bit with GP leads. We've also got firms... Um, have historically um raised kind of dedicated GP led vehicles, including Pantheon and ICG, some of the better known ones, obviously slightly different sort of sizes and ends of the market. But you know, that that capital will have to be there to do those deals as well. So probably something to something to think about as we watch more secondary players come back to market for, for their fundraisers.
1: Yeah, it's a weird one though, isn't it? Because, you know, people tell me is exits are being done for the right assets but i think those assets still also fit in the bucket for gp led secondaries as well because i think gone is the notion now that you can you put your worst performing asset in a continuation and that's a way to kick it down the road i think what we have really seen with these is that they are genuinely most of the time being reserved for for the golden assets but those are the deals that you could probably make a full exit on in this current environment as well and are the ones that people want to buy interestingly, uh, I was speaking to someone yesterday who said what they've seen on their sell side work is that there's actually in the past few weeks they're seeing more bidders during the process because we write we wrote and talked a lot at the beginning of the year about um bilateral conversations and kind of clinging on with with one or two bidders but it now seems like the bidding pool is is spreading out a little bit but then there's also this clash of like okay do you put it in the GP lead as well and kind of cling on to that value or, or which path are you going to go down so it, it would be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few months.
0: Yeah and I, I think we're seeing signs of of GPs who are sort of almost going for, for neither of those options in the way as well and they're raising specific funds to reinvest in their portfolio companies that they are selling to kind of keep the value there to get it in a later vintage fund anyway but not go through the kind of GP-led um, process because if they can get a sort of good valuation on the, the open market they'll do it and also, around the kind of arguments people make for g p leds um buy and build is is a huge one, um but you know yeah, equally that's an argument that can be made when you're selling something that you know there's still more more potential for for growth so yeah you're right it is a it's a tricky one
1: yeah, I think so. One thing I did forget to mention actually, um which I'm sure will be of interest to our listeners is uh everyone seems to hate eBITDA now when they're buying businesses, so and uh they want to actually they want to see the cash flow and on the on the tech side they want to see that you know, not so focused on revenue growth. They want to see the cash flow, they want to see that it's profitable. So the, yeah, there's all these new metrics, um, which perhaps should have been the focus before, but are coming newly to the fore, which I think um a lot of vendors will have to sit down and think seriously about if they do want to make some good exits over the next six months.
0: Yeah, really interesting. So people are buying into kind of concretely what's actually there rather than the, the potential, the kind of good story about what, what could be. Well, we will wrap things up there, I think. But thank you, Rachel, for um, joining me. Always great to, to hear your insights. And thank you, listener, for tuning in again. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again in the next episode.